Tuesday. I sat down on my office chair and opened the paper I was writing in my word editor. I searched for the section where I had left it, but I could not focus. Whenever I wanted to extend an argument, my mind drifted to Marky. I did not feel at ease. Why can I no longer connect with Marky? Why does she not want to have sex with me anymore? It was no use. I got up and made some tea in the staff kitchen. When I returned, I checked my email. 62 unread messages. I went through them quickly, deleting the ones that did not require any attention from me. Some emails did not require any action, but I had to keep them for future reference. I moved them into my elaborate folder structure. There was a place for every email. I was down to 38 messages that were really more like a to-do list. But where to start? An email from the American Computing Association demanded my attention. Your ACM membership is about to expire. Please renew today. I surfed to the ACM webpage, logged into their system and paid for my annual membership with my university credit card. I saved the receipt as a PDF document and forwarded it to the secretary. This should not require much explanation. She should know what this is about. My bladder gave me a clear indication what I should do next. When I left the toilet, I thought about Professor Smith. It's not like I'm getting anything else done. I stood in front of Professor Smith's office door and, with a bit more confidence than last time, I knocked. Come in. I found Professor Smith with his feet on the desk, a book in his lap. How are you? All good. How about yourself? Emails, emails, emails. All I do is answer emails and move them into folders. No, you sort them. Well, yes, of course. After I have completed the associated task, I move them into my folder archive. How else would I ever be able to find them again? Just use the search box. Why waste time on sorting them? Are you still using Yahoo's web directory? Oh, that's gone. But only last year. Its closure attracted more media attention than its operation in the last ten years combined. Are you mocking my technical skills? I'm not sure. I have to look it up for you on these 35 mil slides. Uh, could we use your projector? Sure, it's right next to my 78 RPM record player. Do your slides also have an answer for how else I should keep track of my tasks? The sender usually wants something to be done. Worst of all, from me. So you are using your inbox as a to-do list. Let me guess, you also use it as a file storage system. What? Whenever you ask somebody these days if they have a certain file, they usually reply, oh, it's somewhere in my email. The folders in your hard drive are supposed to be your file storage system. I'm not that bad. I mean, I still have a folder structure in my documents. But you're right, I, I don't move all the email attachments into it, which leads to my inbox getting bigger and bigger. I regularly get threats from our IT group that I exceed my quota. And what do you do about that? Nothing. I'd be grateful if they closed my account. I wouldn't have to answer emails. Besides, why should I pay any attention to such minuscule quotas when even free email services provide practically endless email storage? Aren't universities supposed to be leaders in science and technology? Who wrote the book of should? Oh, oh don't let me continue with my rant or you may regret it. Let's focus on issues on which we have at least some control. I'm still fighting with the sorting problem. 
I've been thinking about it for a while now and I'm confused how it is possible to have a very clear definition of the colours blue and green in our heads. But we're unable to define the exact borderline. Shouldn't we have clear definitions for everything? That's what Aristotle tried. He gave names to everything and organised them into a hierarchical tree structure. Such taxonomies are still the most common organisation tool in Western societies. You mean the tree of life? Aristotle didn't only name animals and plants. He ordered pretty much every aspect of human life, including language and government. What was the name again of that Swedish fellow who created the tree structure of all living things? That would have been Carl Linnaeus. He named and sorted them all, didn't he? He wasn't the first to name and sort animals. Every culture started to name animals and plants, in particular the useful ones. Next, common names had to be negotiated so that people from neighbouring villages could be sure to talk about the same things. This was particularly necessary for organisms that could provide nutrition and medicines. Knowledge and stories were then collected. It's part of what makes us human. It typically starts with a more general term such as ant. Once many different ants were identified, a prefix might be added such as red ant. But how would that work if you had 100 different types of ants? You'd have to keep adding descriptive terms to the name, making it too long for anybody to remember. Now that is true. It became very difficult to make a decision on whether a newly found animal was truly new and what other animals it might be related to. So there were two challenges for dealing with animals and plants. First, they had to be named and second, the name had to be shared with others. Then it was necessary to find relationships so that it was easier to check whether a species was actually new. Correct. And what kinds of relationships did they consider? In the beginning they considered a one-dimensional line of animals based on Aristotle's idea of a scale. The highest animal on the scale was the human and all others had to be sorted by their complexity below it. Aquinas then extended the scale by putting angels and God on top of humans as the highest form of existence. It was supposed to be like a chain but it proved to be too difficult to define a complexity criterion that would be useful to sort all the plants and animals. So they started to use multiple criteria? That is true. But there was no agreement on what features to use. Linnaeus used, for example, the sex organs and leaves of plants to identify them. By looking at the jaws and teeth, he could recognise animals. The natives in Bolivia, on the other hand, looked at the bark and insects on the tree to establish their type. So they didn't only have to agree on the names of organisms, they also had to find common ground for the features they used to identify them. And all of that before the arrival of modern communication technology. Yes, and in a time where researchers would prefer a certain taxonomy over another, not because it was more practical, but simply because it was created by one of their countrymen. Linnaeus didn't make any particular effort to seek consent for the naming and organising of organisms. Only he himself had the right to name them. Even his students, who collected the original samples, were not given this privilege, although several species were given names that referred back to the person who discovered it. But if he was such a dictator, why was his taxonomy adopted by so many so quickly? He clearly didn't seem to care much about the opinions of others. He considered it his holy task to name all organisms. Others may or may not have empathised with his religious mission, but in the end, pure pragmatism won. 
Linares's taxonomy was useful and extensive. It was easy to see the features necessary for the identification of an organism. But what organisational principle did he use? A single chain doesn't seem to be possible with using multiple features. Linnaeus developed a hierarchical tree structure. In his eminent book, Systema Naturae, he printed the complete tree in the form of a big table across several pages. These pages could be unfolded from the book so that the complete animal kingdom was visible. <laughs> if the complete animal kingdom fitted on a few pages, then he couldn't have named all living things. Ah, uh, yes and no. He had a fairly good coverage of the plants and animals that were accessible to him. During his lifetime, he and his students collected many of them in Europe. He eventually also sent students out on expeditions to the newly discovered countries around the globe. They brought back samples from around the world and Linnaeus named them and sorted them, personally. So what did he not name? He was not aware of anything that you could not observe with your eyes. Such as bacteria? Yeah, that's a good example. He also completely underestimated the variety of insects. But he made a tree, and as you said before, we are still using tree-like structures. So what's wrong with it? Occasionally it becomes impossible to classify a new specimen since it breaks the taxonomy. Well, that could hardly be the fault of the animal. <laughs> of course not. A popular example is the uh, platypus. And what was the issue with it? When the naturalists discovered the flora and fauna of the New World, such as Australia, they discovered many species that seemed to defy the rules of the taxonomy. The definition of mammals at that time was that they give birth to live young and produce milk to nurture them. Birds were warm-blooded, egg-laying animals. Reptiles were cold-blooded, egg-laying animals. A platypus laid eggs and suckled its young. It therefore did not fit into any of the categories. Then the taxonomy was wrong. It could hardly be expected of any researcher to get it perfectly right immediately. Crisis was deeper than that. Carl Linnaeus and his fellows were deeply religious. They wanted to discover the hidden structure of God's work, a challenge to a wonderfully developed system also cast doubt on God's design. So they assumed that there is a hidden structure beyond all the appearances, a divine principle that is stable over time. But since Darwin's discovery of evolution, I mean, we know that nature is not stable, it changes all the time. Well, Linnaeus was born more than a century before Darwin. For Linnaeus and his students, the slow evolutionary change provided a sufficiently stable phenomenon to study. If evolution was much faster, then the whole project to classify all living things would become a Sisyphean task. Once you classified all the butterflies, they would have evolved. And you'd have to start all over again. Oh, now you make me worry. If developing a taxonomy is only practical for stable or slowly changing systems, what chance would I have to classify Lego bricks? The Lego company may decide to change them at any time, so trying to classify the bricks could be a never-ending story. No, not necessarily. The phenomenon of the Lego system is pretty stable. The basic concepts remained unchanged. Today, you can still put a 50-year-old brick into the latest model, and it will fit. Well, I agree with that. But when we investigate nature, we try to understand the features of the animals and plants. We start with a blank slate, and eventually we may know everything that is to be known about a certain species. With Lego bricks or any other human-made artefact, it's different. 
The Lego company knows everything about their bricks since they've produced them. Is this knowledge publicly available? Barely. But it doesn't take much effort to derive the Lego principles from sample bricks. There are already many toy producers, in particular in China, who shamelessly copy Lego bricks. Has a Lego company done anything about it? They had several lawsuits with the Canadian Megablocks company. They lost. Their patent expired and the brick principle can no longer be protected. So you would be able to find the Lego principles as a stable phenomenon. This is what your ideal order should be based on. Uh, coming back to the divine principles that the platypus disrupted, even for the agnostic naturalists, it caused a considerable stir. Linnaeus's taxonomy had been widely adopted. A fundamental change in the criteria for a mammal would require the approval and adoption of the whole community. It took more than 85 years to accomplish this. <laughs> it seems that building a consent is harder than making the actual discovery. That could very well be the case. But coming back to my original problem, colour is a continuum with no clear borders. Still, we both can easily agree on what red is. <laughs> Eleanor Roche asked herself the same question. Who's she? Well, she's a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. In the 1970s, she worked on the problem of how people categorise colours. It was a popular topic at the time. Brent Berlin and Paul Kay had already shown in the 1960s that only 11 basic colours exist across 110 different languages. There was disagreement amongst some cultures as to what a basic colour was, but they were always drawn from the pool of the 11. Eleanor visited the Dani in New Guinea, and despite the fact that their language had names for only two colours, they were still able to identify basic colours better than non-basic colours. What were the two categories of colours the Dani had in their language? Light, bright and dark, cool. Let's do a little experiment, shall we? Sure. Let me just write a few things down on this piece of paper. Uh, uh, no looking. I'll turn it round for now. There. I will ask you several questions and it's important that you answer quickly. Just shout out your first answer that comes to your mind, okay? Yes. What is between 10 and 12? 11. On which side of the road do they drive in England? Left. Name at all. Uh, hammer. Name and colour. Uh, red. Right. Here are your answers. Hammer. Red. You see, we have a prototypical ideas of categories in our mind. A hammer is more a tool than an Allen key is. Eleanor introduced the concept of centrality. A central example of a category has the most features in common with the members of its own group and the least features in common with members of a contrasting group. Features are then organised in a matrix where the vertical dimension is the level of abstraction. The greater the inclusiveness, the higher the level of abstraction. Each category is completely included in at least one other category. Can you give me an example? Sure. Uh, the category animal completely includes the category of dog. Every dog is an animal, but not every animal is a dog. The category animal is therefore more abstract than the category dog. Roche wrote that there are commonly three levels of abstraction used. A superordinate level, such as animal, a basic level, such as dog, 
and a subordinate level such as golden retriever. And well, what's the horizontal dimension then? The horizontal dimension segments objects at the same level of abstraction. It is concerned with how a dog is different from a cat. It really means how many features they share and on how many features they differ. This is where the clusters of objects that belong together are formed with the help of central examples. Prototypes. To know what tools are, it is sufficient to give you a few examples, such as a hammer. What's the advantage of these prototypes for us? The main benefit of thinking in categories is that it is cognitively efficient. All the objects in a category are considered equivalent. If you've never seen an Allen key, but I tell you that it is a tool, then you already have some ideas about the Allen key in your mind, such that it is likely to be an object to manipulate other objects in order to transform the world into a desired state. So when I ask you to give me a red Lego brick, I roughly know what colour to expect. Exactly. And that also means that I'll have to create my own taxonomy of bricks. But what features should I use to distinguish between them? I'm not an expert on Lego. Did you manage to meet with Francis? I'm visiting him tomorrow. No. Please give him my regards. Sure. Well, back to my research. Wednesday. Thank you for helping me. It's really raining cats and dogs. It would have been much easier if you'd picked another time. Now I have to put the kids to bed all by myself. Can you not meet him in the afternoon? We are both working. Or maybe on the weekend? This is the time Francis suggested I'm keen to meet him. Oh, you and your silly hobby. That's my pen! No, I had it first. Girls, stop fighting. If you fight over something, then Daddy gets it. Camellia, give me the pen. But I had it first. It doesn't matter who had it first. Look, if you two do not agree, then I get it. Hand me the pen. The traffic light is blue. What? The traffic light is blue. Drive. It's green, not blue. What are you talking about? That's what you say in Japanese. Yeah, but your traffic lights are green. I know, but we call it blue. Now, that's interesting. That might be a good example of prototype theory. You know, there are 11 basic colours from which most languages take their definitions of colour. In particular, the difference between blue and green is not present in many languages. Japanese has a word for green, Midori, but it is a new word. How new? I do not know. Traffic lights are ao, which means blue and green. That's exactly what I mean. Eleanor Roach discovered that, well, Stop you know, lecturing me and pay attention to the road. I just wanted to share some ideas with you. I don't care about prototypes. Just drive so that I can get home with the kids. I'll drive you back with my bike. See you later, girls. Bye, Dad. Thank you, Marky. <laughs> I ran to the entrance door with my bike while Marky drove off. I placed the bike next to the wall and locked it. The house was on a corner with large windows on the ground floor. Across from the house there seemed to be a school. I rang the bell, then heard footsteps. An elderly man with a round belly and a thick grey beard opened the door. Good evening, Robert. Come in, it's raining. Oh, thank you, Francis. I hope you didn't get too wet. My wife drove me in the car, it's all good. You can hang your jacket here, and then let's move into the living room. It's much nicer and warmer there. I put my jacket on a hanger and followed Francis into the living room. 
The room was straight from the 70s with dark wooden panels across the walls and a spiral staircase that had a thick rope as a handle. A few Lego models were spread across the room. Can I offer you anything? I'm fine, thank you. Please, have a seat. How can I help? Well, Mark Smith suggested that I could talk to you about Lego. Yes, he mentioned that. I do indeed have a little collection. Well, it doesn't look to be too extensive. (laughs) Oh, no. The collection is upstairs. My wife doesn't allow too much Lego down here. My wife would prefer me to have no Lego at all. How does yours deal with it? She fully supports it. She says it keeps me busy and out of her way. When you've been married for as many years as we have, you start to appreciate time apart. A flash of jealousy flashed through my heart, but I could not share my sorrow. Yes, well, I had all my Lego bricks in a box, but, well, that didn't work. I then sorted them according to their colours, and I still couldn't find the right parts easily. Mark mentioned you have a system for sorting them. I'd be curious to understand what features you use to distinguish between them and simply to have a look at how it's done. That's easily done. How much Lego do you currently have? Around about 41,000 bricks. That's not bad. Shouldn't take you too long to sort. Some of my Eiffel friends have several million. So how many do you have? (laughs) Several million. Seriously? I've collected Lego for 40 years. It does add up, and the bricks don't turn bad. When did you overcome your dark age? My what? The period between when you stopped playing with Lego, typically with the onset of your puberty, and the time you started buying Lego again. That often happens when you have your own children. In that case, well, let me think. Too long, I suppose. It never really stopped being fun. But parties, girls, and impressing your friends became just so much more important. You couldn't openly admit that you still played with Lego when you were 16. So, what brought you back? Your children? No, way before them. I couldn't resist the first Lego Star Wars sets. But it came much less embarrassing to browse through a toy store when you're with your children. I know. My daughter has already moved out. She studies in Auckland. Oh, good on her. Does she play with Lego too? Yeah, we still have daddy and daughter builds. I can't wait for that to happen with my kids. Just keep on buying bricks. I wish it was that easy. I also have to deal with a grumpy wife. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, you can't have it all. Is there any chance I could maybe have a look at your brick collection? Of course. Follow me. Francis got up and walked up the spiral staircase. It was an old house, and the wooden stairs screeched under his weight. I followed him at a comfortable distance so that Francis's feet would not end up in my face. We ended up in a corridor with four doors. Francis opened the door on the far left and we entered a large room. All the walls were covered with industrial metal shelves, each shelf containing clearly labelled plastic containers. Towards the back a wall of stacked cardboard boxes claimed their space. A few of them were open, revealing a stadium terrace on which hundreds of Lego figures were standing. Across the middle of the room were large drawers forming a working bench. A small desk in the corner hosted a computer. This is my project room where I work on larger models. Amazing! And over here, I have my train assembly lab. (laughs) Oh, what? You see, I I sell custom-made trains and wagons made of Lego. 
I, I bulk order the parts, sort them into bags, uh, add instructions, and put everything into a nicely printed box. And Lego lets you get away with it? As long as I don't claim that this is a product from the Lego company, it's fine. They know me since I order many parts from them directly. How many do you sell? I'm limited by the time it takes to sort the bricks. I really should have a higher student for this. Shall we move on? There's more. Just a little. Francis exited through another door that led into a small corridor with a ladder. We climbed up into an attic, well lit and fully renovated. It was filled with hundreds of Lego boxes stacked in shelves. This is where I keep most of my sets. Don't you open them? Not these ones. They're, they're too valuable. Like what? Let's have a look. Francis picked up a box of a little Lego truck. The box looked worn but had no tears. It read Maersk Line Truck 1651. He took it to the table where a laptop was placed. He sat down, opened a web page and typed the set number into the search field. This set was produced in 1980 and it was only given to the Maersk company, who in turn gave them to their best customers. It's not clear how many sets were ever produced, but five sets are currently on sale. Only one of them is in mint condition, and the Japanese seller wants 400,000 yen for it. That's around 4,557 New Zealand dollars. My set is not new, so I, I guess it's worth much less. You have a fortune up here. You, you should insure it. I did. Although the insurance agent had difficulties understanding the concept of collectible Lego. I can imagine. What website did you use? It's called Bricklink. It's the largest Lego trading platform in the world. You can buy pretty much any brick in any quantity. Sets are also being offered. But be careful with this site. It's highly addictive. Francis, you have a lot of Lego. That's all relative. Can you show me how you organized your bricks? Sure can. Let's climb down again. We made our way back to the large project room. All the shelves with their drawers and little boxes gave me the shivers. In particular, the labeling. It was neat. Every brick had its place. This is amazing. There are so many different bricks. How do you ever find them? Over here are the basic bricks. One by one at the bottom, up to the one by 16. Next to it are the two by two bricks down there to the two by 10 on top. The cheese slopes are on this side. Cheese slopes? Those little one by one slopes look like wedges of cheese. It's their common name. The official part ID is 50746. How do you know that? The IDs are usually visible inside the bricks. They're part of the molds. Here, have a look inside this brick with this magnifying glass. I see two numbers, 3001 and 13-250, and the Lego logo. I'd never noticed this before. The first number is the ID that you can use on Bricklink, Pick a Brick, and other websites. It identifies the shape, but not the color. I believe the second number is the ID of the mold. The Lego company can trace any imperfections this way. So that is the system. You can just sort all the bricks by their numbers. You could, but that would not be practical. The IDs are rather random. You would want to have similar bricks together and the bricks that you need most often with an easy reach. 
Ah, you're right. So how did you do it? The basic bricks are on this shelf, slopes and inverted slopes next to it. For the basic bricks, I sort them further by their color, as I have so many of them. For most other bricks, I leave the different colors in the same part in the same bin. It's easy to see the difference. A considerable amount of pride was visible on Francis's face. My appreciation for his sorting system was a true compliment. Not many would be able to understand and cherish a well-sorted Lego collection. We browsed around for a little while longer, opening drawers, looking at unique and rare parts, and reminiscing about the sets we owned when we were children. Eventually we climbed back down the spiral staircase and sat down on the sofas in the living room. You know, Francis, you have all these great Lego sets. We should organise an exhibition and show them to the children. I'm not sure if my collection is good enough for it. It sure is. And if we can find a few more AFOLs, then we could probably put together a pretty good show. Are you sure you want to showcase your Lego? Remember, you are a grown man. Every grown man has the right to make a complete monkey of himself every once in a while. Maybe. I could ask some of my friends. Maybe they would join. Well, yeah, we, we should really do this. Maybe I should get going. It's getting late. No worries. It has been a pleasure to share my passion with another AFOL. <laughs> Thank you, Francis. It's been very inspiring. I have a much better idea of how to sort my bricks now. We got up, I put on my jacket and stepped outside. The clouds had cleared and it was a dark, starry night. Good night, Francis. Have a safe trip home. I pushed into the pedals and flew through the night. My thoughts were up there in the night sky, full of stars. The roads were abandoned and I started to sing. I tried to identify some of the star signs and the major planets. I could make out Venus and Mars. What did happen to Pluto? It used to be a planet, now it's not. None of the planets changed, so why did it no longer fit into the planet category? Another example of taxonomies gone wrong? Marky was still awake when I returned home. She was sitting on the sofa watching an episode of her favourite drama series. How are the kids? Poppy threw a tantrum. What about? Why does it matter? She wanted to finish her drawing before she went to bed. I think it would be much better if we could draw a clear line. Bedtime is bedtime. That way we only need to fight with her once. Oh, shut up! You were not here! Yeah, but I know what Poppy's like. She needs clear rules. It will make it much easier for all of us. Oh, you and your rules. Everything has to be fixed. That is not how life works. You just don't know... What it means to be a mother. I have to be with them every day. You can escape to your job. Hey, I'm their father, and I do know a thing or two. And why do I have to be sorry for earning the money for this family? If we had to rely on your income, we'd be screwed. No more holidays and yearly trips to Japan. Fuck off! Don't you use that language on me. Fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off! I am your husband, and you should be nice to me. Why do you treat me worse than anybody else? I fell backwards. While Marky regained her balance, the kick was not particularly strong. But Marky's intention to hurt me cut a deep wound. You're crazy. I'm going to bed now. Just run away, bastard! I got up. And the potential for physical intimidation shifted. Now her head only reached to my chest. Marky took two steps back, expecting retaliation. I'm not going to go down to your level. 
That way I will maintain the moral high ground. Good night. I passed the heavily breathing Marky, denying her any acknowledgement of existence. I closed the living room door behind me and walked into my room. I sat down in my bed, but I could not feel a thing. I need to look up that Lego spaceship I used to own. I took my tablet computer and visited the Bricklink webpage. There. There, everything is in order. I browsed to the catalogue set space, classic space, set number 928 Galaxy Explorer. There was also a US version with the number 497. Interesting. The set was released in 1979. I was six years old back then. 322 parts. Four minifigures, 1250 grams. 46 by 29 by 6 centimeter box size. 22 lots available. A used model is available for 178 New Zealand dollars. A new sealed set is available for 2,591 dollars. Yeah, that's what I should buy. Now that would really piss off Marky. I registered on the website and completed the purchase of the used model. Should be here in two or three weeks. What else is there to buy? How about some cool Lego Batman? Weird. There are two categories, Batman 1 and Batman 2. What's the difference? I continued to fantasy shop some more items before putting down the tablet. So where was I? Pluto. Why is Pluto no longer a planet? My mind kept spinning in endless loops like the planets round the sun. No beginning. No end. Damn it. I have to work tomorrow. It's late. I, I must get some sleep. I got up and searched through my toiletry bag in the bathroom, found the small pack of sleeping pills and took one. Only five left. I've another business trip coming up. I need to visit the doctor and ask for some more next week. I returned to my bed and continued my favourite audio book. I had listened to it a hundred times already, but it still had the power to immobilise my thoughts.